It's October 1991 along the East Coast. Folks are enjoying the fall weather and getting ready for Halloween festivities. Offshore, Hurricane Grace churns in the Atlantic but poses no landfalling threat. Then, an extratropical low develops off the coast of New England. Absorbing moisture from Grace, it rapidly intensifies, transforms into a massive cyclone on a collision course with the eastern seaboard. Now, earlier in the day, it was easier to see how strong the winds were. Swells were whipped up so high that at one point, this Coast Guard cutter virtually vanished from sight. There were also reports of some spot flooding, and some roads did have to be closed due to the high winds, which in some cases reached upwards of 55 miles an hour. The devastating winds and waves leave widespread destruction from Canada down to the Caribbean. Overnight, the elements have recarved Chatham's face, slicing streets and hacking homes. All through South County, the story is the same. Beach erosion and flooding are worse than in Hurricane Bob. Fishing boats were slammed into rocks. Others were helplessly beached. All of them are trapped. So much sand was kicked up, the entire channel must be navigated again. In the aftermath, a book titled The Perfect Storm would chronicle this meteorological phenomenon. Later, a blockbuster movie by the same name would bring the story to the big screen. But what exactly led to the development of this monster storm? You know, because of the evolution that things had to come together in a certain way in order for this massive storm to develop. Today, we are going off the radar to find out. I'll speak with meteorologist Joe Sinkowitz, who is working at the National Weather Service during the storm. That the wind field from the storm was massive. We'll dig into the accuracy of the book and the movie. They were in an area where things degraded very, very, very quickly. He used the word perfect, and that's where it, where it came from, and it stuck. And the evolution of marine forecasting over the past three decades. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie, and you're listening to Off the Radar, a production of the National Weather Desk. On the show, we dig deep into topics about weather, climate, the ocean, space, and much more. Our goal is to help you better understand the weather and to love it as much as we do. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Off the Radar. I have Brian Vandegraaff with me today. So I'm recruiting a different fun Sinclair meteorologist for every podcast now. This is the trend because <laughs> I just don't like doing this alone. So I'm really just being lazy. But you're so fun and I, I never oh get to goodness. chat with you. So I'm forcing you to do this with me. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, there's no forcing, first of all. I'm excited to be here. I actually was a little bit nervous. I mean, I've listened to many podcasts in my life, but I never thought I'd be part of it. But you know, the kinds that I listen to sometimes I wouldn't want to be part of because they're not good stories oh, sometimes. The, <laughs> the murder ones. Everybody oh. loves the murder ones. Exactly. You know, we're coming up on the anniversary of the perfect storm. And it's funny because everybody knows it as the perfect storm, but it was actually called the Halloween storm of 1991 because it happened right around Halloween. But it's funny, you've seen the movie, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And like, were you, I mean, I guess most of us were like adults when the movie came out. So we kind of, we were at this point interested in whether if not already working in the field. So I think like everybody remembers kind of the portrayal of the storm and like people's reactions. And then the meteorologist saying, it just might be the perfect perfect storm. storm. No, I, it it is kind of funny to watch some of that too, because the, the glamorization of the business too, it it just kind of cracks me up as well. I mean, the weather aspect, yes, but just how the weather person was treated and, and, you know, them at the makeup chair with like their, with the paper towel. You know. They're always treated so right, well. Exactly. So do you watch the morning show then? I do. I do indeed. <laughs> I mean, because it's fun to like watch things that are kind of similar to allegedly close or related to what you do. And then you can look back and be like, man, that really isn't how, how it works. <laughs> but Yeah. No kidding. I, I always laugh at like the floor director because she's like, and five, four. Oh, right. In the meantime, in my experience, like the floor director is usually eating a snack, like oh, yeah. when we're coming on air. <laughs> or so, yeah, it's like, oh, you're up, you're up, um, no, you're uh, on you're now. Up. Brian, you're on, especially with weather. Cool. Well, do you have like a favorite weather movie? I, I mean, I know like Twister impacted my life and I've done a whole podcast episode about that, but. No, and I do love a little Groundhog Day or a little Bill Murray. I don't know. I mean, I know that's kind of crazy, but I was trying to look back like of some like movies. The Shining, crazy The Shining, remember The Shining? Uh, Jack Nicholson at the very end when it all wraps up and he's outside in the you know the blizzard conditions and you know it just it, it it's like pivotal moments in movies that maybe whether it was at the prime star but it was definitely an integral part of it yeah and there's always like that great line from a movie that's not even remotely about weather like I always think back to Forrest Gump when he's talking about the rain like itty bitty stinky rain right. and <laughs> rain that comes out from underneath. The day after tomorrow, I always think of too, because that was like the, fir- I feel like the first portrayal of a climatologist, you know, like oh, Dennis Quaid was a climatologist. And it's so funny because when they had the, uh, the instant freeze across New York, you know, when everything just came to that hard freeze, I'm like, yeah. And I they're mean, like running from it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Out running the freeze. <laughs> so I interviewed Joe Sinkowitz. And he was one of, I think he's one of the only, if not the only meteorologists still working for the National Weather Service that was working on the perfect storm, like in 1991. So his recollection of the storm is pretty good. He gets very in-depth. Like he remembers the formation. He remembers every element. And he, um, I asked him like some questions about the movie, like, was this spot on? Was this ridiculous? Like, you know, he was talking about the comparison of buoy data in the ocean at that time of where the Andrea Gale was in comparison to kind of like that wave of water we right. see in the movie. So he addresses some of that. Um, and uh, he was great. And he has like a real Boston accent, which made the whole, <laughs> it was like icing on the cake of the whole thing. So Joe Sigowitz, um, he's now the chief uh, of the ocean application branch of the NOAA Ocean Prediction Center. Um, but at the time, he was on the Atlantic High Seas desk for the National Meteorological Center, which was in Camp Springs at the time. So um, super cool guy, very knowledgeable. I talked to him all about the perfect storm. 
Brian Vandegraaff, thank you for joining me. Uh, fun as always. Oh my goodness, thanks for having me. Let's do this again soon sometime. Hey, you got my number. <laughs> some call it the perfect storm. Some call it the Halloween storm of 1991. I'm very curious on your take on that a little bit, but tell me a little bit about what you were doing in 1991. I worked at the National Meteorological Center, which no longer, that name doesn't exist within the Weather Service. Uh, NMC was in Camp Springs, Maryland, uh, just just across the Beltway from Andrews Air Force Base. And as part of the Weather Service modernization, functions were uh, that had been out in the field offices were actually brought in that didn't quite fit the modernization. So, and one of them, and it was an opportunity, is the Weather Service consolidated marine, high seas marine uh, weather forecasting and warnings. Uh, under NMC. So I was part of uh, part of sort of the group that was brought in in order to uh, uh, do high seas forecasting and warnings. Your accent is telling me that you're local to the New England area, though. Uh, I'm a Bostonian. Yeah, I grew up in Dorchester. It's so hard to tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might slip a north in once in a while. So. All right. So you were actively forecasting the storm at the time then. So I was on the forecast desk and we had at the time we had rotated uh, eight hour shifts, three forecasters. And my predecessor on Saturday night really was thinking forward, looking at the evolution, you know, and and think back to the day 1991, that the way we were doing things, everything was in paper. So we didn't have anywhere near the level of detail that we have now. Uh, and I do remember during this, this event, just having paper sort of like in my lap and, you know, uh, yeah, it was just sort of just such a different era than it, uh, than it is now where everything is, is uh, digital and on screens. And, you know, we use mice instead of, you know, actually hand measuring distances uh, with dividers. Uh, and we actually did some hand plotting of, uh, of additional ship data. We go through a list and plot. So Saturday night, uh, Steve Pond uh, was the forecaster and Steve had a sense. We had a challenge. And one of the challenges back in that day was for non-tropical storms, what we call extratropical storms, meaning that they're winter ocean storms like the perfect storm or the, or the Halloween storm. Uh, we were limited in, our, in what warning criteria we could use. So even though we'd be forecasting hurricane force conditions, we either, we either gale, which is uh, Beaufort uh, 8, 9, 34 to 47 knots, and then storm, and we basically 48 knots and greater is what storm was based on the, the international rules at the time. So started on Sunday and each day it's sort of, okay, it's, it's not changing, that it, it is going to be a really significant rapid development uh, just south of Nova Scotia and the pattern, the overall large-scale pattern, and this is typical uh, that can happen in October. In fact, late October is a very stormy time. Um, that the the pattern overall of the steering currents can amplify. So rather than having, say, a westerly jet and all storm systems just moving from west to east, when it's amplified, storm systems, when they develop, they tend to, to either move from south to north or north to south, or in some cases, and this is true for the perfect storm, that the pattern became such that a ridge built over 
a, what we call a digging short wave that, that amplified south of Nova Scotia. Well, that gave birth to, if, if you read the, 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 the book or in the movie, that was the Sable Island storm. I know there's kind of the distraction of the hurricane, but man, the Sable Island storm was impressive. Without the hurricane, it still would have been an, a really, a, a very intense rapid development. With it was cold air coming off of Nova Scotia. You could see that in cloud streets in the satellite imagery, and it spun up very, very quickly. Because of where it was in relationship that the pattern had amplified so much that the upper low was to the southwest of the storm. So what did that do is it actually took the surface low and retrograded it. It moved westward towards the the, the uh, mid-Atlantic and the, and the New England coast. Is that something you saw coming or yes. did that surprise you? It surprised that it was there, meaning there in that location. But being an ocean forecaster for a long time, it happens. For that intense to do that is what was unusual. And the fact that the wind field was so large. Yeah. Okay. So then tell me about the role that um, like Hurricane Grace and then the other storm played in this as well. So Grace existed before the, 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 the perfect storm, the Sable Island storm developed. Grace was moving to the Northeast. And as the uh, Sable Island storm intensified and a, a cold air pushed southward, there was increasing southwesterly flow in advance of that front. So Grace accelerated to the Northeast. It was an ingredient into the larger scale storm. And that's, I think, one of the elements why it's called, a, a, one of the evolutions, why, you know, the phrase was a, a perfect storm. Right. It's funny, though, listening to, like, you talk about this versus, you know, like a movie <laughs> talking about it. Because in the movie, it's like, you know, it absorbed Hurricane Grace and became the perfect storm. And you're like, well, it was an ingredient. There was moisture. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little less sexy, but that's all right. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I've, I've seen a lot of storms. I, I, like I said, this, the, the Sable Island storm, the, the intensification was really, really uh, quite impressive. That the wind field from this storm was massive. So it was a complex evolution. So, and it makes sense meteorologically, but it was amazing to watch how it evolved. The storm basically, or the atmosphere delivered cold air over the whole Western Atlantic. You know, very strong cold front. The storm itself, it actually ends up being a low-level pool of warmer air. Not necessarily warm air, but it's it's called a seclusion. So we, we all talk about occlusions, but actually occlusion leads to seclusion. So you have a warm, shallow area with cold air a lot because you, you just delivered cold air. So it it that's prime for developing convection. So that's what happened. As the storm was, say, off of New Jersey, starting to move south, relatively deep convection, it wasn't particularly shallow, formed around the, the center of the circulation. So it actually, and I think it was on Thursday, it actually developed an eye. So basically, it actually became a hurricane. So you had a storm that was this large developed a hurricane in its center that was was relatively small, but it was it was actually measured by an Air Force uh, uh, a hurricane hunter. It had 80 knots of wind. So today this would have been named, do you think? Yes. And it, it actually, if you go back in the records, you will see the track is there. 
that it is in, it is listed as an unnamed storm for 1991 and it would have been on re. I do remember that at the time. There, there was a conscious decision between the uh, director of the uh, Meteorological Operations Division at the time, Louis Uccellini, and Bob Sheets at the Hurricane Center, that be, because of what this storm had done to the coast, that we, because the wave action and all, and we'll get to that, the damages and all, because of that, it made, it was only meteorological sense in order to name, to name the storm, that there was no need. Warnings were up that we didn't need to add a level of confusion. And I think it was a good decision at, at the time, a good communications decision, but turn around and it is in the database as an unnamed storm in 91. Okay, so did it make landfall? So it did make landfall. It would have been in Nova Scotia. And I don't think at that time at that there was much in the way of it because it had weakened relatively quickly. So along the East Coast, who kind of got the worst of it? Actually, it was more than the East Coast. So it was from Maine to Puerto Rico, to the Northern Islands, Dominican Republic, Haiti, Bahamas, Florida, all the way to Maine. Wave generation is complex in a way. And I, and I wanted, this was a special thing about the storm, was that, okay, so the storm moved westward because it was caught in the circulation of the upper low. The easterly winds to the north on the north side of the storm were very, very intense. So in that area, that moved westward, but it moved westward at a speed where wave generation was optimized. I guess I'm curious why there were fishing boats out or was there just one fishing boat out? And that's, that's the one we hear about. What, were, what was the warning system like? So the warnings at the time are text bulletins that were transmitted by high-frequency radio uh, waves by uh, Canada's Coast Guard, al also with the U.S. Coast Guard uh, broadcast. It only went out to 36 hours. So you would have had a day and a half of warning. Um, graphics now go four to five days, uh, and numerical model data goes out, our, our own global forecast system, GFS, goes out 15 days, and then we have extended versions of that. Things have really changed. It's just a different world. I, I'm guessing some of the fishing excursions were quite long, correct? Like, yes, you're leaving yeah. days before potential yeah, if, warnings. If the the vessel that was lost was a sword fisherman, and they basically would be out for quite a long period of time. Okay, so let's talk about you work the storm, you get through it, and then years later, this book comes out, and eventually, a movie. I'm curious, as somebody who lived this and saw every aspect of the storm, what you thought about the book? I think I think the book did a good job. It did did, a, did he, for a layman, and probably better to be a layman to be writing writing the, the book. I mean, he's an author, but but I think he did a, a a good job. I mean, there was some language in there that weren't wasn't quite right. I remember there was something about the LFM balloons being lifted, being being raised. We launch, we still do it, radio songs uh, every 12 hours. And he was referring to the radio so sound launches, took a little bit of liberty. And the LFM was our uh, short-term model that we had at a really coarse res resolution. But actually, the I think he did a good job in some ways because he took the context, you know, and and had that, you know, and, and built the story around that. So I think he did a fairly, fairly good job. The phrase perfect storm is actually from, was the, the, the deputy at the Boston forecast office, uh, Bob Case. You know, because of the evolution that things had to come together 
in a certain way in order for this massive storm to develop. He used the word perfect, and that's where it, where it came from. And it stuck, does do it justice. We tend to call it the Halloween storm because its impact was, was Halloween, but it already had been evolving for a couple of days. Well, it's interesting too, the book, I, it's when you, I thought you were going this direction when you started it, when you said, you know, it wasn't just about the storm and the evolution of the storm, but I was thinking also about the people involved in it and the people impacted by it and that, you know, the book really stuck to kind of the story of the people impacted by it and the people that were living and working in this area at the time too, which I, you know, I thought they did a good job of, of showing that because not everybody understands that lifestyle, the, the fishing lifestyle. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's, I mean, really, that's that's the core of the story is these, these you know, uh, Andrea Gale. I have looked at buoy data and all from, you know, to keep kind of in my own mind as to how, you know, with the evolution of things and how severe there was a, Cana- one of the Canadian uh, nomad buoys was full uh, four one three seven if I remember right, was in the relative vicinity of, of Andrea Gale. They were in an area where things degraded very, very, very quickly. Uh, in part because, well, the evolution of the storm it was an explosive development, then also the wave generation that I mentioned. From looking at the buoy data, what did you get from that? What did that tell you? Did it tell you wave heights? What kind of any sort of wind information of what was going on near the Andrea Gale at that time? I, I If I remember right, the winds were, were strong storm to near hurricane force. Seas increased very, very quickly. I mean, seas went from like nine feet to what we call, this is significant wave height, which is the average one third of the highest waves. If I remember right, I think they they, uh, got up to about 57 feet. That's the significant wave height. But the uh, Canadian buoys back in that day, even then, they still do measure maximum wave. So it was 99 feet. So that's an isolated single wave but think of it, it doesn't, so you're thinking height, but what you're not thinking is what does that really look like? What's the face of it like? How sharp is it? You know, is it breaking, you know, curling down? You know, how does, the, that's the destructive power basically is the waves. And those are the conditions that they were. You know, people definitely have their kind of critiques about the movie and that one scene where there's this massive wave just kind of overtaking the boat, but it doesn't sound like it's that far-fetched. I, I think they made the wave look sort of laminar, you know, kind of smooth. But I think, I mean, a lot of times you'll see that just one sea just heaps up and is breaking down. So whether or not instead of what they call, well, pitch, po- pitch polling, you can go this way or you can go this way. You can actually do like a, a, a back pitch pull. I think more typically would have been just a forced roll. I think the wave looked a little bit, not as extreme, but just not as smooth that might get, you know, just a large breaking wave in a horrific sea. I think another thing that people don't appreciate, and they don't have to, uh, is what what the wind does when you have 50, 60, 65, 70 knots of wind, the ocean surface is being shredded. So, and this is, uh, Sebastian did a terrific job in this. When you get up into hurricane force conditions, minimal hurricane force and higher, there's basically, it's a mix of spray, foam, Basically, the ocean surface, it's violent, is being, is being shredded and talks about the lower part of the atmosphere becomes an emulsion. And in other words, it's, it's, it's a combination of everything. It's just not air. So, uh, and I thought he did a really good job that way because it, it, when, you, when you fly in an aircraft and see what the ocean looks like, it, it really is an emulsion. 
Um, it's almost like the boundary layer sort of thickens uh, because it's not quite this and it's not, it's not quite air and it's not quite ocean, but it's, it's a mix of both. And, and I thought that was, to, to the layman, I thought that was a fantastic description. Do you know if he um, consulted with the meteorologists that were involved in the forecasting of the storm at all? Yeah, he talked to the Boston Forecast Office. So Bob Case and others, Waltrag, others, and I'm, I'm sure he talked with them. Um, the other the other part, and this uh, was he talked about the uh, effects of drowning. And I, I thought that was extremely sobering. Um, so, yeah, I... I I found a hard time reading that because I was a merger mariner and I, I've known people had colleagues that uh, passed away, you know, with losses. So, uh, yeah, and I've kind of carried that always, always with me in my career, that there's, there is a reality to this. Um, something we've changed over the time. So you asked, you know, were there fishing vessels out there? I mean, we have the evidence that, you know, losses and all, but nowadays, actually, we can see where vessels are relative to active weather. To what level? Like how small of a vessel could you see? It depends on the equipment that they have. We, we, see sh we can see ships and some from fishing boats. It's a different world than it was in 19. That's the po point I'm trying to make in many, many different ways. It's a different world. Yeah, obviously forecasting has changed a lot. So as far as the ship, do you think Andrea Gale would have been rescued during the storm if it were 2023? If they were in that location, I'm not, I, I I'm, don't know if that would be able to be done because the conditions are so severe. Would they have had potentially more advanced warning? There's much more available, but not only that, the predictability has been pushed out, uh, you know, f fairly far now, especially for a large scale storm like that, that, that it, you know, not 24, 36, 48 hours now is... Look at Lee. I mean, we Lee was the evolution of that. It seemed like we lived that for two weeks. We did, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> okay, so 1991, you were clearly early on in your career at this point. Um, had you seen anything like this before at that point? And did you learn anything from it moving forward in your forecasting career? Yes. Okay. So good, good question. Had I seen anything like this beforehand? No, not of that scale. So that was an education. Another one was wave generation and relationship to wind and the motion of the storm, of storms. Another one was, and I think we all learned this, is graph that we need better graphics and the graphics have to be available. Any comparable storms to this storm since then? Have you ever looked back over the past 32 years and said, ah, oh, man, this reminds me of the Halloween storm of 1991? Sandy. Yeah, Sandy. Did that bring back a lot of memories to people in New England? Yeah, Sandy really, the, the, the tropical form of Sandy became the center of a much, much larger storm. Sandy made landfall, actually stalled uh, inland. There was snow inland and all, so it had a cold side to it. Uh, in fact, if you read the books about, about Bounty, uh, Coast Guard uh, C-130, they were using their de-icing boots in Sandy in a rescue because it was a cold air mass. Um, and the scale of Sandy and, and wave action, uh, inundation, uh, and all. In the final report from the National Weather Service, they call this the Halloween nor'easter of 1991. 
78 mile per hour winds were reported in Chatham, Massachusetts during the worst of the storm. Although New England was the closest to the storm receiving the hardest blows, widespread destruction was the rule as far south as Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, with scattered damage occurring all the way to southern Florida and even into the north coast of Puerto Rico. Off the Radar is a production of the National Weather Desk. Make sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. If you know someone that's interested in the perfect storm, please share this episode with them. We'd also love you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Let us know what you think of the show. Give me some ideas for future episodes. Special thanks to Joe Sinkowitz for his expertise and to meteorologist Brian Vandegraaff from WJLA in Washington, D.C. for joining me at the beginning of the show. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie. Make it a great day.